In Brooklyn, on the phone with Christina Greer of Fordham University, also in Brooklyn. Hello. Hello. And Alex Lynn of Racket Media Slam. Hello. Hello. So, it's been another week of mixed indicators here as the overall trend lines are continuing to go down, even as they're swelling in the rest of the country. There's been all sorts of issues with the NYPD enforcing social distancing nicely in some places and not so nicely in others. You already know, and if you don't, you can guess. And later, Christina talks with Michelle Jackson of the Human Services Council about the other essential workers. And Alex talks with Clayton Gusa of the Daily News about the shutdown of the city that never sleeps, and with that, the removal of the homeless from the uh, train system. So, Let's jump right in. Alex, fill us in on the week that was in New York City. Well, I mean, the indicators are going down, but because some of them are rising steadily, we went from 79 to up back into the hundreds for people admitted to hospitals and things like that. Not all our indicators are going down at the same time. So with everybody kind of taking a breath over the weekend, there was, of course, nice weather and a lot of people out. So you had, I mean, huge throngs of people all over the piers in Greenwich Village, all over Central Park, not so much Bryant Park. Uh, by and large, people were social distancing, but not a lot of people in those areas had masks. You saw photos of police officers handing masks nicely to picnickers and things like that, and very few incidents, even though there were a lot of photos of less than six feet apart and, you know, public drinking, etc. Over the weekend, there was pretty horrendous incident caught on tape. When Commissioner Shea and the mayor addressed that on Monday, the commissioner seemed incredibly conciliatory and said that this was not what he liked seeing, the officer had been put on modified service, things like that. But as more videos came out of policing in Brownsville over the weekend and on Monday and East New York, you know, you saw that kind of defensiveness of past commissioners come out a lot on Tuesday when he said that punching someone in the face was a part of police training, that it was not excessive force. And it was, he, he implied that the face punch was like a step in de-escalation. Like first it's talking, then it's pushing, then it's face punching. Something like that was implied in his quote. The mayor didn't seem to say or do anything at the presser, but this has gotten a lot of attention on social media However, not quite enough, I guess, in my opinion. The other huge story of the week is the fact that, you know, as you said in your piece in the Sunday Daily News, the city that never sleeps is now like taking a nap. Uh, the trains are shut down from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. And on Tuesday night, the NYPD and the MTA workers cleared out the homeless. Pat Foy of the MTA said that like 2,000 homeless people were cleared out. And that apparently, uh, quotably, surprised the mayor a lot, even though if you've been in the subway in the past two years, 
I don't think any New Yorker who's actually been in the subway is surprised by that at all. Well, I mean, my question is, if this is standard practice, how come I've never seen a white lady get punched in the face as part of some sort of altercation? And I'm just sort of looking at the visuals from this weekend and seeing everyone sprawled out in Prospect Park and Central Park. The demographics are clear where you have sort of younger white New Yorkers with zero masks on getting free masks from the NYPD and seeing the opposite going on in Crown Heights and Bensonhurst and other parts of the city. So yet again, the mayor and the police commissioner kind of mealy mouthed on the racial implications of some of these policies that don't seem to be no surprise, allocated um, equally across the board. Yeah, I mean, uh, to see the the video of the young men in East New York being told to back up repeatedly without being offered a mask or anything like that, I mean, I doubt anyone who's of their age in a different neighborhood like Chelsea, Greenwich Village, Upper East Side, etc., I think they would be incredibly scared to be spoken to in a way by anyone, the way these teenagers are spoken to every single day by people with guns. In any given video, especially when you're starting in the middle of something, things can be confusing and there's a lot of perception involved and you don't always know what's already happened and the circumstance. Um, East New York video, there's one kid who's already been arrested and they're screaming at everyone else to back up. But I also know that cumulatively, when you see that really vicious beatdown in the East Village that seems utterly uncalled for, and you just see all of those videos and you're contrasting those with the people very nicely gathered and being politely offered masks, that it it screams about something being wrong. It's also just fascinating. Several of them, the officers aren't wearing masks or one of the guys is wearing them, but it's not actually covering his nose or his face. Yeah, what's up with that? No masks or gloves. And it it seems like this might be a moment as the NYPD has dealt with its own sicknesses and people calling in sick and deaths in the course of this when you'd want some disposition toward social distancing from the police for non-emergency situations across the board and a real sense of of de-escalation. And at least from some of the footage we're seeing, and who knows how representative that is, we're, we're getting something else entirely. I know that a lot of people in the department have this fear that in the midst of this, the city is basically being left to police itself and it can't. But up until this point, at least, I, it doesn't seem like crime outside of the trains, which had its own set of issues, has really in any way been out of control or that we need more aggressive force in the course of this. So I think it, it's just distressing to see. What's going to happen in the summer months, if something goes down with a police officer and a civilian. I mean, you're going to have a a pretty bad situation in this city with a pandemic, with heat, with not everyone having air conditioning and people being told to limit their outside time. I mean, Alex, add to that robust list the fact that people are broke and there's no camp and the first thing de Blasio cut in the budget were summer programs for teenage kids to have summer employment. So add all of that with hot temperatures and no place to go and nothing to do and no resources, then we have a little cauldron. There was, just before the train started closing for the overnights, this incredible almost, oh, Henry's short story brief piece in the uh, Daily News by Rocco Parascandola, who's their uh, police bureau chief, 
about this officer, Lieutenant Ryan Murphy, who saved a uh, homeless man from committing suicide by jumping in front of a train at the uh, 207th Street station. So what's remarkable about the story, which opens amidst the noise of a train pulling into an uptown Manhattan subway station, NYPD Lieutenant Ryan Murphy caught a sound of desperation. It came from the man who walked by Murphy on the platform at around 1 a.m. on Thursday. I heard him mutter, I'm going to throw myself in front of the train. He had a gym bag over his shoulder. He turned straight even with the edge of the platform and went to drop the bag. You can see it. You can feel that he was going for it. But I closed the distance, and I was able to grab him, spin him, and pull it back. And there's some video of this with the uh, story. This played out in less than 10 seconds. Murphy was in this station with these other transit cops, NYPD nurses, and outreach workers as part of the city effort and the MTAs to help or uh, the homeless who've been underground and have remained there as other people have stopped using the trains, or alternately, depending on who you listen to and ask, to, to, to get the homeless out of the trains, much more than to help. You know, de Blasio was saying 130 people accepted offers of shelter, but then the MTA is saying more than 2,000 people were pushed out of the system. So you have to sort of measure the one against the other. And what makes this story so remarkable is that the, the news managed to interview this man Right. A TV reporter has spoken to him just before he tried to kill himself. He said he left a crowded city shelter on Ward's Island to live in the train because he felt less likely to catch the coronavirus there. And that with these new efforts, he said he had nowhere to go. Where do you want me to go? He asked. The weather hasn't broken and we're scared to go to the shelter because of the pandemic. He was actually wearing a surgical mask when he tried to uh, take the leave. And the story goes on, but it's a little remarkable that this man who's trying to kill himself, he says, in part, because of this effort to push him out of the uh, train system, is then saved by one of the officers who's there to be doing just that or to find help to these people. It's, you know, as I think we've all noticed, the virus is sort of exacerbating and exposing a lot of the difficult dynamics that we're already here in New York. Um, and, you know, and as people are, are searching for any shelter within this. Well, Harry, speaking of homelessness, you know, I had a conversation with Michelle Jackson from the Human Services Council this week, and you know, 60% of the workforce, people who are taking care of the elderly, people who are taking care of marginalized populations, qualify for public assistance themselves. So let's take a listen to my interview with Michelle Jackson of the Human Services Council. Hey, hello, it's FAQ NYC, and I am here with Michelle Jackson, Acting Executive Director of the Human Services Council. It is a beautiful Tuesday, Cinco de Mayo. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us on FAQ. Thanks so much for having me. I really wanted to have you on just because you represent human service workers in New York City and New York State. Can you just tell our listeners a little bit more about that population and what they do and who they serve? Absolutely. So the Human Services Council, we represent about 170 human services organizations in New York City that do everything from child care services to senior centers and everything in between. You know, we also represent, when we represent those organizations, the human services workforce, which is there's about 400,000 workers across the state who are out there on the front lines every day doing home delivered meals, home care, operating child care centers, senior centers, and obviously, you know, with what's happening with COVID, a huge shift in the work that they're required to do and also obviously critical services that they need to be out in the community still doing during this time. Right. So these are the frontline workers that we often 
hear about, but not in the same context. I know that, you know, we, we, excuse me, we obviously oftentimes (laughs) talk about doctors and nurses and EMTs, but we're sort of forgetting about some of the people who work at say nursing homes and who were actually delivering meals to the sick and shut in. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. We saw with the human services workers, you know, a lot of them, the services have to shift after COVID, you know, the senior centers had to close. You can't have a hundred seniors in a room together, but all of those workers are still, they shifted to grab and go meals and now home delivered meals. There's still home care workers who are, you know, taking the subway to go visit patients in their homes and all of the different residential facilities like homeless shelters, domestic violence shelters, and group homes for foster youth are all still operational. And they have COVID cases in those residential homes. And we're asking human services workers to kind of risk their lives and their families' lives, like so many other first responders, every day to make sure that those populations are being served. And really what's important about serving those populations right now is it's keeping them out of the overburdened hospital centers, Mm -hmm. right? So if you have all these seniors who can't go out for food, having food delivered to them is even more important right now because it's keeping them safe and out of the hospital system. So are these people being protected by the governor and the budget that he's putting together or has put together? So far, no. You know, nonprofit workers have had a hard time accessing PPE, like masks and gloves, like everybody else. The governor and the mayor have both deemed our workforce essential workers, but have not been able to, I have to say the city is trying to get PPE. You know, there's limited incentive pay or bonuses being paid to human services workers. The governor has not provided any of that. And actually the governor, you know, looking at his budget, potential budget cuts and what he might do, that's all going to impact the human services workforce and the programs that we provide. So we're very nervous about that. Yeah, I I could imagine. Is there a two-pronged strategy that you all are employing, say city versus state strategy? Uh, I think some of the asks are really the same as the city and state, right? Like, I think our workforce is drastically underpaid. 60% of the workforce in human services qualify for public assistance. We're one of the lowest paid workforces across the state. The governor hasn't provided any cost of living adjustment. And I should just pause to say that most human services are contracted by either the city or the state, which means that this government really does set the salaries of these workers, right? Like individual nonprofits don't because the contracts really dictate their salaries. The governor hasn't given a raise for those on those contracts for over 10 years, which is why some of these salaries are so low. And so we're taking this opportunity to push for what we always have, which is that this workforce is so essential to the fabric of New York. And it's showing that now more so than ever. And we need to be investing in, they need to get hazard pay or incentive pay, just like people are advocating for police, fire, retail, et cetera. They need better protection. And they also need, you know, not just in this crisis, but in future budgets, they need to be protected and they need to have better wages. Right. Are these um, employees oftentimes unionized or no? So it's a mixed bag. Uh, There's some who are unionized across the different unions and a lot of them are not. And so like childcare workers are, and there's a couple of other populations or, or even just individual nonprofits who are unionized, but the vast majority of them are not unionized. Right. And when it comes to the city budget, you mentioned that the city's been a little bit better in dealing with this. How so? Yeah, so the city has provided, and we have to take this mayor, has provided cost of living adjustments in the last number of years. There isn't one scheduled for this upcoming budget, but they have been providing minimal increases for human services workers. But on the flip side, what we're now starting to see is, you know, understandably, the city and state are both facing real big budget crises. But now is not the time to to make those cuts on the backs of human services workers and providers. And we're seeing the city, you know, they cut all summer youth programs, which kind of 
really set the sector in chaos. Our, you know, our providers have had to lay off a lot of their summer youth workers. We're probably going to see another set of budget cuts, you know, at both the city and state. And we're very worried about what that means because just because kids can't go to summer camp this summer, they still need something to do. And mm-hmm. it's our programs that are, that should be serving them. So while the city, I think, has been better to human services workers over the last couple of years, there's still a big gap that needs to be bridged, uh, especially in this crisis. And I think we're very worried that they're going to continue to slash budgets. We're not going to see anything from the federal government because uh, we, we haven't so far. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and it's going to really impact the recovery of New York, too. Like, if you don't have a robust human services network, uh, you don't have recovery. Right. Now, as far as layoffs are concerned um, with your workforce, um, are you all, even though people are essential workers, are you all still seeing large layoffs? Absolutely. We surveyed our membership and 70% of our members believe they will need to lay off staff as a result of budget shortfalls. They're seeing the cuts, obviously, to summer youth programs that were completely decimated in the budget. We're expecting more cuts, but also, you know, a lot of our nonprofits had to cancel fundraisers and galas and things like that in the coming months. And so they have to look at those revenue streams as well. And then they're also seeing an increase in costs related to COVID uh, in order to serve populations. So they're looking at huge budget shortfalls and some have begun to lay off staff and and definitely they think in next fiscal year they're going to have to. Mm-hmm. Um, which is really scary because if you think about all the needs as we come out of COVID, hopefully (laughs) we'll see, you know, people are going to face eviction. People are going to need different types of jobs. Kids are going to need childcare again so people can go back to work. And if the sector isn't at the ready to provide those services, recovery is going to take a lot longer. Mm -hmm. Is there any silver lining in all of this? So I think as an advocate, the silver lining is for years I've been standing outside the steps of City Hall and and the Capitol saying how important this workforce is and that we really are first responders. And I think that this crisis highlights how essential our workers are the work that we do is, right? Like we're the ones who are keeping seniors safe. We've seen the healthcare network really respond to our sector and say, we know the work that you're doing and that you're keeping people safe and healthy so that we are not dealing with more people and we can focus on COVID. And so I think this is really highlighting how essential our workforce is. And I should say, when I talk about our workforce, it's 80% women, it's 80% people of color. Mm -hmm. So this is also like a real equity issue. When we think about the people who are most impacted by COVID, it's also the human services workforce. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the silver lining is that we're able to really highlight how crucial we are to the fabric of New York City and to keeping people safe and healthy. And so we're taking advantage of that for sure. Right. I mean, I was definitely assuming that the demographics of your workforce population skewed female and skewed people of color. But mm-hmm. it's it's very interesting to hear that such a large number are represented in your organizations, just because that also does match on quite sadly with salary and lack of compensation. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think when we hear the governor in particular talk about a women's agenda or women's equity and, and closing the pay gap, where, you know, raise our hands because we're like, yeah, you're 80% women is in this workforce, 400,000 workers. If you increase the pay for human services workers, you would take a big debt bite out of that equity issue. Mm-hmm. Right. And it seems like it, it could be doable, but now in a budget crunch, we know that marginalized communities oftentimes get asked to wait when we're trying to figure these things exactly. out. Now, okay, yeah, so there's nothing more important, right? I mean, we subsidize horse racing in New York mm-hmm. and the Olympic training facility. I mean, there's all sorts of places where we should be looking at where our money is spent and the, you know, the limited resources that we have really need to go into supporting communities of color, supporting low income communities and recovery and all of those kind of merge perfectly when you talk about the human services sector. Wow. 
Michelle, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Um, I so Thanks appreciate so much for having me. the work that you and you know your organization's doing to support our first responders and frontline workers during this time. Is there anything that um, our listeners need to know as they sort of walk away from this? I think for you know, people who are really interested in the work that HSC is doing or in supporting the nonprofit sector, they can go to our website, humanservicescouncil.org. We're doing every Friday an advocacy action with the hashtag fight for the front lines because we really want to highlight all of the different ways, not just with the budget, but with how government treats nonprofits so we can make changes to aid in recovery. And we'd love to have people you know, participate and follow that hashtag uh, and become involved in our work. Okay, hashtag fight for the front lines. Thank you so much, Michelle Jackson, for joining us on Thanks FMT. so much, Christina. 5.30 on a Wednesday evening. In about a half an hour, Alex will be talking with Clayton Guza of the Daily Newsa. <laughs> and there's plenty to discuss there with the trains, which are his beat as the system shuts down overnight. With the mayor saying that's certainly a temporary thing, but we'll see. Uh, with the uh, homeless being pushed out, and with workers concerned for their own their own safety in the midst of all this. So, forward half an hour. And here we are. Hello. Hi, Clayton Guza, right? Yes, that is the correct pronunciation. Wonderful. Uh, This is Alex from FAQ NYC. Hi, how are you? So you were down in the stations in South Brooklyn. Carrie Burke was up in North Manhattan. Can you tell me a little bit about what you experienced last night when the subway shut down for the first time in all of New York City history that we have not had 24-hour subway service as a temporary measure that the mayor says will come back? So I started touring parts of the system about nine or 10 last night, just kind of getting a vibe. I've been riding it, but trying to understand kind of where people are going. It's been a ghost town down there anyway for coming on two months now. I was posted up at Flatbush Avenue Terminal, which is at the end of the number two and five lines in Brooklyn in Flatbush. That particular terminal is a particular problem point for the MTA, both in terms of the amount of homeless people that end up there. The number two line is one of the longer lines in the city. It's about two hours end to end. So people will sleep on that train, end up at the end, kind of flip around sometimes because it doesn't loop, that that station doesn't loop around. Right where Brooklyn College is? Yeah. So, so trains come into one track, the crews flip around, and they go back in the other direction. It's not like some other end-of-line points where you, like, I guess the famous example is the end of the six, where you literally go around a loop track, right? So uh, it's it's just kind of a dilapidated station in the first place. Like, on a regular winter day even, much less the summer, you'll, it'll smell like tea there. Um, and, and, it, and it certainly did last night. So I'm, I'm touring that station. I get out there at about 10 p.m. Um, that's right when a cleaning crew of private contractors is staging up, is getting ready to start work, right? So I'm watching them uh, do their business. It wasn't this robust, or later in the night at about 11, 
the MTA at 96th Street on the queue on the Upper East Side on the 2nd Avenue subway demonstrated new cleaning techniques that they're testing out, like uh, uh, an electrostatic spray and antimicrobial stuff, um, some very advanced stuff that makes for good television clips, but is also just something they're testing out in select areas and not something they're distributing system-wide. And by select areas, you mentioned the Upper East Side, the very beautiful Q train with the stations adorned with Chuck Close, like, mosaic uh, artwork, things like that. Very different than flat. Right, right. I mean, they're also te- they're also doing it in train yards that serve all these areas, to be fair. But, yeah, that's, I mean, you, you get the optics there. So the these when the trains are still in service, you know, 10 p.m. They still have another three hours before they shut the system down from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. This crew of 12 people, they're wearing masks and gloves and vests, not much more. They're going into trains when they come into the station, and they're like a like a race car pit crew, right? 12 people going on, wiping down as much as they can, mopping around homeless people who are there. The cops aren't there to boot off the trains yet wiping things down the best they can trains go back down for service right another train comes in three minutes it's it was like they were like running from one side to the other to get the job done right so you know, more people show up so more supervisors start to show up more cops starts to show up uh, and more outreach workers start to show up as we get closer to one right because they they're focusing on end of line stations where people will be asleep on trains and they need to get them out of the system and uh give them some sort of outreach for aid or help. Um, but at 1230, I watch half of this 12-person cleaning crew walk out of the station. One woman was crying. These people, it turns out, are making $18 an hour. They're predominantly immigrants. Their documentation status is unclear. They were told that they would get full coveralls, right? Like kind of full body PPE while they're going in there cleaning up trains during a pandemic where they already have been in close proximity with homeless people. Two and a half hours into the job, it was this company's first night at that station. They they walked off the job, uh, six people. So so that was a bit of a red flag. It's, and then after these people walked out, I'm talking to them upstairs, I go back down. The remaining six people are walking out of a break room. Now they have the full body PPE on, you know, with the full, you know, shoulder to toe kind of protection plus a mask. And just to be clear, are these people that the city has hired or no, these are people a private contractor has hired who presumably has very little accountability when it comes to transparency to say the press like the city would. Is that right? Well, I mean, these are... The MCA has a weird history with hiring private contractors to clean, but this is a private contractor that this company gets a contract and how they get the cleaning job done is up to them, right? They have certain, the, the contract has to say you, you have to give them proper protective equipment, but there is no mechanism in place that I could see um, that ensured that the contractor or the, their personal supervisor followed through, right? But in, in, I guess some context here, the MTA last year in early 2019 through Cuomo's um, subway action plan had gone to hire a lot of private cleaners to deep clean stations, right? It was a part of his, you know, the $836 million subway action plan with the system following the crisis of 2017. But about June last year, I think, 
I like shadowed who was the new MTA inspector general, Karen, uh, Carolyn Percorny at the time and toured some of these stations where they were doing these deep cleaning. Now, in terms of skirting safety standards, um, nothing new. They, it, when I, when we saw that, this is when they knew that there was going to be the MTA IG there. I don't know if they had any semblance of the press was going to there, but the executive of that company was there to show the IG. This is last year. And immediately when me and my photographer and this group of people go down onto the platform, they have six gas generators on the platform powering power washers. When we go through the gate, one of these power washers backfires six feet into the air. It's inches away from singeing my hair. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to breathe on these platforms. So, so to say that the MTA does a not so good job of ensuring that the workers hired by its outside contractors to do this kind of cleaning work are safe, I think that there's a pretty a well-documented record of that for context. Now, what about the clearing of the homeless encampments or the homeless New Yorkers that had been staying on the trains since the weather hadn't changed so much yet for them to start sleeping on the streets? Yeah. So, um, I mean, it was nicer last night. I mean, that was Wednesday morning. Uh, Early Thursday mornings expect to be colder, but they – 1 a.m. hits. It's just before 1 a.m. and one of the last trains roll in. Um, the schedule actually shows that trains were going to roll in that station until uh, closer to 2 a.m., just by the way that they schedule things. But around 1 a.m., last trains roll in. The vast majority of people sleeping on these trains are homeless, and the vast majority of those people are completely surprised and are shocked to learn that the system is shutting down. There is a lot of people yelling. There are outreach workers from the Bowery Residence Committee who are trying to get them to take shelter. They, uh, only a couple people have active conversations with them at that moment. Um, but there's a lot of shouting, a lot of confusion. Part, I mean, part of what I wanted to see was where are these people going to go when you boot them out of the system, right? They gated off the, um, stairwells. So followed a couple of people upstairs via the elevator. One, uh, two men, one who uh, was a Dwayne Reed worker who had come down after a shift to drop off money at his girlfriend's and came down on the station and had not known that it was shutting down, went back upstairs, went to get on a B-103 bus, and another homeless guy was there, was also waiting for the bus. Bus was too crowded, bus leaves. They wait for the next one. I go around the corner and see... A, a good chunk of the people who I'd seen on the platform freaking out on a B44 select bus northbound. So I'd jump on there and kind of and talk to some people on the bus. All sorts of people ranging from people who say they've been living on the train for years to one guy who said, I got kicked off by my girlfriend last week for my drinking problem and I was just planning on sleeping in the subway until I figure out what's next. Uh, to another guy who sleeps on the trains because he currently struggles with addiction and sometimes sleeps at his aunt's. So you had a bunch of people just heading north, kind of trying to figure out what to do next. And most of these people don't have cell phones. Most of these people don't have access to real-time trip planning information. And um, there weren't anyone from the MTA outside of the bus driver who could really give them advice on where to go. But what about the police or were there any 
social workers or human resource workers or even, I mean, you said that there were some members of the Bowery Residence Committee. Were they active in trying to hand out information or did they have any literature to hand out, uh, you know, places to go, phone, phone numbers, bags of quarters in case you can still find a payphone, anything like that? Yeah, I mean, the, they're, they were very active in trying to engage people, the BRC people. Um, before 1 a.m. hit, about an hour before, um, there were uh, officers from the NYPD's outreach unit uh, talking to people who were already at the station. They got one guy who was kind of slunched over near their stairwell and wasn't, he was alive, but um, not really moving. They got him onto a stretcher. Another woman who said she was kicked out of a comfort inn on 44th Street in Midtown the night before for breaking curfew uh, asked for shelter. So there was so there was that present presence of outreach workers. But when when the when the actual cops came and said last train you all have to get out, there was a lot of screaming at cops and cops just kind of. <laughs> not knowing what to do, really. So one of the other questions, I mean, I could talk to you all day and just try to hear a few more experiences about uh, what it's been like down in the subways uh, for the past two months. Would you, could you, would you care to share with us and our listeners a little bit about what it's been like in the past two months just watching this country's largest city with one of the most robust transit systems dwindle and wane to the eventual closure of it. You have been a transit reporter, I'm not sure how long, but as a transit reporter in this city, what has it felt like over the past two months and what does it feel like now to see the 24-hour subway system come to a halt? Yeah. Yeah, I've been I've been I've been covering transit for the news since the start of 2019. The uh, so I think right, it started to feel creepy on the subway, for lack of a better term, around right like the weekend after school shut down. Right, that's when you saw ridership really fall through the floor. That's the same week bars and restaurants shut down. The same week that Cuomo said all non-essential workers have to work. Right, so ridership falls through the floor to you know ten percent or lower of pre-pandemic levels kind of the first few weeks of that, it was very high anxiety. We, this is a disease. We don't know how it spreads. The MTA did step up and scale up some of its uh, cleaning and disinfecting efforts, but it was still just kind of eerie on the subway. It, it's eased up as people have kind of adapted to their new routines, but at the same time, it's that it, you've had, you've had an escalation in crime I, I mean, in late in March 27th, you had a arsonist who is still at large who lit a Uptown 2 train in Harlem on fire. That would normally be, you know, weeks worth of news. But given the given the environment, it, it's not. And that fire, the fire ended up destroying several train cars and killing a train operator. But throughout April, I think you get the sense that people are adapting to the new reality. But there is less see something, say something aspect. And you have more of a, uh, not a sense of uh, wild, wild west or chaos, but there is a little bit uh, more disregard for the rules for people who are 
using the system for um, non-commuting purposes, we'll say. I think uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was at the, it was nine o'clock on a weekday. I was at the Hoyt Skimmerhorn station waiting for a G train. And Hoyt Skimmerhorn is a transit district. There is a police precinct on the mezzanine, but on the platform right below, and sometimes you see this a little bit more on the slide, but I'm just watching a guy openly shoot up heroin on a platform, which isn't something that you would see so brazen uh, in a typical run-of-the-mill commute when tens of thousands of people are going through that station a day. Although in the past few years, I have seen a few people at the West 4th Street train station sort of brazenly just smoking cigarettes, hanging out. Not so much public shooting of heroin, but definitely the smoking of cigarettes kind of came back in the last two years. It reminded me of high school a little bit. Um, Yeah. So what was it like, you know, I mean, with transit workers and then shutting down, what has the mood sort of been? I think we all, a lot of people read that amazing op-ed by a train conductor in the New York Times today, which is Wednesday, um, May 6th, uh, just kind of describing the mounting fear over the past couple months. A few of her colleagues that are now dead from COVID. Uh, what has that been like? So you had the first transit worker die, confirmed uh, transit worker death of COVID. Um, I think it was March 26th, March 27th, last week in March. Uh, in six weeks, that number has escalated to at least 109, all but three of whom uh, worked in the subway and bus divisions. So you have this overwhelming fear. Basically, since the first transit worker passed away from the disease, uh, I've been hard-pressed to find a person on the subway side who has not told me they should shut it down. It's been, it's been, you, you, I mean, they had to cut service by 25 to 30% in March because they had so many people out sick or out on quarantine that they, they, they didn't have enough people to run trains, right? You only have a certain amount of qualified people who have done the tests and exams and have the experience to operate a subway train, right? Um, so you, since then you've seen, I, it's, that's only grown. The more, as more deaths come, the more workers I hear from that say, shut the system down or shut it down entirely. They're not necessarily worried about the homeless. They are just worried about crowding into break rooms. They're worried about being on a system that people are still using. They're worried about being exposed to the disease. And this is a vulnerable group. This, this, uh, these workers tend to skew older, um, workers, transit workers at New York City Transit at the MTA skew older than cops and fire. Their cops and fire can, can start collecting a pension after 20 years. MTA, uh, can't, they can't collect their pension until at least they're 55. You have a lot of, uh, jobs that require you to sit for long periods of time, which, uh, and, and therefore you have a lot of people with hypertension and diabetes and, and, and other pre-existing conditions that make them more vulnerable to this. Couple that with an MCA order for several weeks in, uh, March to follow guidelines from the Centers for Disease Control to not wear masks. Um, while they are in close quarters in break rooms and, and around the public. That was so, the most shocking uh, thing that, for me to read today was that for how, for how long they were asked not to wear masks. Yeah, and, and the MTA has passed that buck on to the CDC. And then, I mean, uh, MTA Chairman Pat Foy a few days before the CDC changed their guidelines and said, actually, you know, masks is a good idea. 
you should wear them, um, had bucked that rule and said, okay, no, you must wear a mask. I mean, in the first week of March, they had said point blank, masks are not a part of the uniform. Some people think that part of that was that when this pandemic was first coming to the city, they didn't want to stoke fear. So they said, abide by the uniform, don't wear a mask. They quickly rescinded that and said, you can wear a mask, but we won't provide it to you. And then a couple of weeks later, they said, okay, we'll provide you masks, uh, which was days before the CDC. But it did, it, it did take weeks. And in that time, you did have this nasty this virus spreading through the workforce like wildfire. It's just, it's a, it's a lot to take in, especially for a lot of people who've been avoiding the subway. And unless you've had to be down there, you haven't been down there. Um, thank you so much for giving our listeners a look into some of the inner workings of what has brought the great subway system of New York City to its knees. Uh, any last thoughts before uh, we we sign off? Yeah, I mean, the the I think the hope among both DMTA and transit advocates is that this doesn't set a precedent that MTA permanently loses 24-hour subway service. Uh, there is, there is a chance that that happens. The, I think MTA officials would say that could happen if we do not get more bailout funding from Congress because roughly half of the money that pays the MTA's bills comes from the fare box and bridge and tunnel funds, right? So they need, they're asking for an, they already received about 3.8 billion from Congress. They, they need, they say they need an, at least another 3.9. So, the idea of losing 24-hour service permanently or beyond the pandemic, I think, is a real possibility. And I think that's the that's going to be the lead question on people's minds who are following this as long as this is going on. That would be a huge change for our city. Clayton, thank you so much. I look forward to talking with you again as we see what ends up happening with our subway system. Cool. Thank you. F-A-Q. We'd like to thank our guest, Michelle Jackson from the Human Services Council and Clayton Guza, transit reporter at the Daily News. As always, our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara is our producer who mixed and mastered this episode. We used to record at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research, and hopefully we will again soon. So from Harry Siegel and myself, thank you for listening to FAQ NYC. Be safe. For goodness sake, the stakes is high. I'm out. You out. ABC ya. Okay, so so from boom to buy, which is like four seconds. Wait, are you you saying you want me to use you recording it through the phone, or you want me to find it and? No, no, it. just use me recording it through the phone. That, that gives it that honesty. No, Adam. What was that even? Use it. It was completely garbled. He goes, just find the link, send Adam the link, and tell him <laughs> which part of the sound he used. Okay, okay. I don't even know what song that was because it's yeah, so crazy through the phone. It, it's, it's, uh, well, you'll all find out with the episode. Adam, Adam will get the, the advance here, but it's good. Excellent. It's good. What, was, what was that, like third base or something? No, that was not third base. That was uh, that that was uh, the Fushnikins featuring Shaquille O'Neal. But it's a very good oh. outro thing. <laughs> All right, I'm out. Yeah, out. Bye. ABC. Yeah, bye. <laughs>